Can you believe that it's December? I feel like this year just flew by. And you know, December, this is the first week of December. And for many people, that means that the Christmas decorations are out. Some very diligent people have already decorated. Um, so when I walk around my neighborhood, I see already, you know, some of the Christmas ornaments and the lights. And I think to myself, yeah, it's not going to happen this year. <laughs> um, some people I know are already writing their Christmas cards. I've at least opened a document on my computer that says Christmas list 2015. So I have opened the document. I haven't edited it, but it's there. And of course, stores are capitalizing in this uh, time to, and they're hoping to make really good end of the year sales. And so they've already begun their, t- their television advertising, the poster advertising, the sales that they're promising to be wonderful and fantastic in hopes of selling um, their goods. And you know, Christmas is also a time when many people uh, around the world attend church for the first and only time of the year. Um, but I want to, you know, it's, it's the first week of December and all, you know, all this talk of Christmas in the air. But I thought to myself this week, you know what? It's not just in carols and bells and, you know, red and green and um, nativity scenes and all this Christmas joy. It's not just this time of year that God exists. There's 364 other days of the year um, where God is present But we don't always see that, and we don't always recognize that. Sometimes God is hidden in the everyday. And that's the title of today's sermon is The Hidden God, The Hidden God. You know, a few months ago, we went through the book of uh, Song of Songs or the Song of Solomons, and we mentioned that that book um, does not have, at least in the obvious surface, any mention of God at all. Um, And we saw that there's hints along, you know, the chapters in the poems, um, but that it's one of the the few books in the Bible that doesn't mention God overtly. And there's one other book in the Bible that does not mention God at all, and that's the book of Esther, the book of Esther. And so I wanted to talk about the story of Esther today. Esther is one of two books in the Bible that are, uh, that are named after female characters. And so the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. And the book of Esther was, um, the story of the book of Esther takes place, um, in the fifth century BC. And it all starts out, um, with this great banquet feast. And in fact, there's actually five feasts in the story. And this very first feast lasts a hundred and, let me make sure I get it right. It lasts 180 days. It's a long time for a feast. And so 180 days of feasting, and then uh, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, makes a decision um, at the end of the days when he is quite drunk and um, is not in his right mind, that he's going to, he's already paraded, you know, all his riches, and he's already kind of boasted to all the people who have gathered for his feast, governors and officials, um, how extravagant he is, how generous he is, how rich he is, and decides, you know what, I'm going to show off one more thing, I'm going to show them how beautiful my wife is. Gentlemen, not the best idea. And so what he does is he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, to come, and present her beauty. Um, and some scholars believe that he was basically asking her to come and um, like, 
basically be naked in order to show everyone how beautiful she is. And if you can imagine, she wasn't very pleased with that suggestion because who wants to be treated like, even though she was a trophy wife in a lot of ways, no one wants to be treated as such. And so she refused to come. Now, in those days, the decrees of the king were what, whatever he said, whatever he wanted was law. And if you did not obey, then you were basically um, considered a criminal and sentenced to death. And so when Queen Vashti uh, refused to come, he was quite upset, especially because it embarrassed him in front of um, everyone that he had invited to his banquet. Now, he could have killed her, but um, I think there was a part of him that knew that he was at fault as well. So he basically banishes her. Um, so she's d- deposed. She's no longer the queen. And so after this banquet that started out with such merriment and such such uh, high hopes on his end, it ends by basically him becoming single. Just when he is sobering up and realizing that he made a very big mistake, um, and he's beginning to wish that he hadn't done this and that he misses uh, his queen after all, um, his servants make this suggestion, a suggestion that I must say must have been very difficult for him to resist. And the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Sushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And that beauty preparations be given them, and then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. This is it, The Bachelor Season 1, Persian Style, 5th Century BC. Can you imagine the number of women in the Persian Empire that the soldiers then went out, the king's servants, and basically went door-to-door gathering um, and... Unlike the Bachelor series, you didn't apply. You were taken by force. And so they would literally go through, and any anyone who uh, hadn't been married yet that any of the servants considered beautiful enough, they would then bring into the palace for this beauty regiment that lasted 12 months. Six months of bathing in uh, myrrh, and then six months of bathing in other spices and ointments. A 12-month um, preparation time <laughs> before you went to see the king. And you would see the king for one day, uh, 24 hours, and the king would basically decide, yeah, nah, or actually, yes, this is the person that I want to make my queen. One of the women that were taken during this time was a woman named Esther. Now, she was a Jewish woman. The Jews had been taken uh, captive into the Babylonian Empire that was then taken over by Medo-Persians. And so um, there was a second generation of Jews who grew up in that kingdom, um, and so who were very much Persian, even though they had Jewish heritage. And Esther, um, her Jewish name was Hadassah, which actually means myrtle, like that little flower. Um, and it's possible that her Persian name was Esther because the myrtle flower looks like a little star. And Esther in Persian means star. But Esther in, in the Hebrew can actually also mean hidden, hidden. And you could say that this book is actually about Esther's hiddenness because when she gets taken to the palace, her cousin um, Mordecai actually advises her, don't let anybody know that you are Jewish. Don't let anyone know. And, you know, no one could have known um, because she grew up in Persia. I'm sure that she spoke the language fluently and that... Um, 
you know, no one, everybody came from different backgrounds, and so no one would really question <clears throat> exactly what her heritage was. And so during her entire time, 12 months, um, getting ready, as well as when she actually gets chosen by King Ahasuerus to become queen, um, nobody knows that she's Jewish. In fact, one of the king's um, officials is a man named Haman, and he hates Mordecai. It so happens that Mordecai uh, works in the palace. He's um, and so he's kind of the gatekeeper. That's why I always call Galen, who you met downstairs, Mordecai, because <laughs> he lets you in. But um, Mordecai is kind of the gatekeeper. He's also, you know, got some scribal duties as well in the palace. And what happened was Haman loved getting the adoration of, of the people as he went through. And because he was high enough of an official, he demanded that any time he passed through, everyone would have to bow down to him. But Haman would never bow down to him. And it really annoyed Haman very much. And when he questioned Mordecai about it, Mordecai would say, I bow to no one. I only worship my God. And so Haman starts this vendetta against Mordecai and decides not only is he going to kill Mordecai and he builds a gallow that's like 23 meters high to hang Mordecai on, but he also decides I'm going to kill him and all his people because if he defies me because of his duty to his God, then surely the others will defy me also. And so he has a plan. So he goes to the king and he suggests to the king, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So Haman's very clever about this. He promises the king money. Uh, he makes it sound like there's this group of people who are actually rebellious and disobedient, so he's doing the king a favor by getting rid of them at the same time. It's an offer that, once again, the king finds difficult to refuse. And so the king says, yep, $10,000, 10,000, um, you know, pieces of silver in my treasury. Sounds pretty good. You have my full permission. And so he gives Haman the full control to do whatever he wants. At this point, the king, nor Haman, nor anyone else knows that Esther, the queen, is one of those people who have just been decreed to die. To die. And what Haman had done was he had chosen a specific day on which um, the king's soldiers would then go out and kill every single Jewish person in the Persian Empire. This was a holocaust that he was hoping would go over well, and he was willing to pay personally to make that happen. Now, Esther, because she's the queen, now could have stayed put. No one knew that she was Jewish. Um, she very much could have stayed quiet, and time would have passed, and she would have been fine. No one would have dared to touch Queen Esther. But her cousin Mordecai, when he learns about this decree, um, and he's in mourning, and she's asking what's going on, this is what he says to her. He says to Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows 
that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther replies, Gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will also fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. These are her famous words. If I perish, I perish. She had that choice to stay hidden. But she decides, you know what? Perhaps all this time, right? 12 months ago, I was taken by force. And, you know, who knows if she was going to marry someone else? Who knows if she wanted to marry the king? I don't know if he's attractive. I don't know if he's a nice person. She has no choice. 12 months ago, she at that moment when she was taken, it could have been the worst day of her life. And then during the 12 months when she's getting her baths, she might hate them. <laughs> she might be surrounded by very, um, you know, for you know, maybe the women around her really were ambitious about becoming um, queen. I've never watched The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, but I've been told it's entertaining because of the viciousness of the competition, right? Um, and just the uh, the drama that unfolds between the women. And can you imagine? You could become queen. Forget you know being on TV. You could become the queen of the empire. Um, and so. Who knows what her experience was like during those 12 months? It could have been miserable. Um, and she doesn't have the freedom to do anything from her former life. She didn't have the freedom to see her cousin Mordecai. Um, she was an orphan, and so she had been adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And so, so much of her life during those 12 months might have been miserable, would have been difficult. And then when she became queen... I don't know. Did she think this is actually the best moment of my life? This is incredible that I have gone from just, you know, a girl um, in the empire to becoming queen. I don't really know what went through Esther's mind. But here she is now, you know, months have passed by. And she has a moment where she has to decide, am I going to stand up and do something for my people? Am I here, as Mordecai said, for such a time as this? Or am I going to stay hidden? Am I going to hide my identity? Am I going to keep safe? And as she says, if I perish, I perish. And, you know, we might say, oh, that sounds so dramatic, Esther. You know, don't have your queen drama moment. Calm down. But actually, in that time, for her to go unsummoned to the king was actually some an act that was worthy of death. Because the king... Um, only allowed those to enter who he personally summoned. And if you dared to go in uninvited and the king was unhappy to see you, immediately you would be killed. And so here she is, three days of fasting. Um, then she goes in. Now, the good news is that um, there's a series of events that happens, but ultimately she um, is able to finally reveal to the king that she is a Jew and that uh, Haman was plotting to kill all her people. Um, and in the end, the king is unable to revoke his own laws, because that was the law that you couldn't revoke your own laws, because then it would reveal his weakness um, of error and judgment. And so he could only make new laws. And so he makes a new law that on that day, the day that they were supposed to all be annihilated, that they could now defend themselves. Um, and so when that day came... All the Jews defended themselves, and I don't think the the king's servants were particularly eager to to um, 
to follow through with the command to kill them. And so in the end, the Jews are all protected, um, and they actually end up with greater riches because their neighbors are so afraid of them that they end up giving them a lot of um, riches so that they um, can prosper. And so then this whole story of Esther is written down, and so every year the Jews celebrate this day, this day of Purim, they call it, um, a day when Esther delivered the people from this ho- this Holocaust that could have happened. But when we look at this story, like I said, Esther's name means hidden. And so we see that her identity was hidden until pretty much the very, very last moment of the story. But as I've mentioned also, God also remains hidden. God's name is not mentioned at all in the chapters of the book of Esther. And the first time I realized this, I was very surprised because when you grow up listening to that story and, and when you hear the story, and, and I've taken the time to narrate a large portion of it for you because there's so many incredible moments in that story. For example, the fact that she gets chosen to be the queen. For example, the fact that, uh, and I didn't narrate this part, but there's this subplot where um, Haman tries to kill Mordecai, but the very night before Haman's about to go and um, ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai, Mordecai ends up saving the king's life that night um, in a series of events that seem like coincidences. And so when you look at the overall story, it's amazing that God's name is not mentioned, especially in contrast to the many other books in the Bible. For example, in the book of Daniel, which is also a book written during the Jewish exile, um, it's very clear from, from Daniel chapter 1. In fact, it's, I think it's verse 1 or 2 that says, God delivered King Jehoiakim into the hands of King Babylon. And then God gave um, favor to um, Daniel's uh, master so that he would allow Daniel and his friends to um, drink only water and eat fresh vegetables instead of the king's delicacies. And then it says, and then God gave Daniel a dream. It's very obvious that God is working. But when you get to the story of Esther, which has very similar themes with the book of Daniel, in fact, if you ever study book of Daniel and book of Esther together, it's fascinating. You see that Esther also comes into favor with the, with the, um, the eunuch who's in charge of all the ladies beautification process. It doesn't say God brought him into, her into favor with him, but you see that, okay, she's brought into favor. Okay, she's been selected as queen, and then she gets, into the king's courts, he's not unhappy with her. He allows her to live. They have this banquet. Haman comes in. And you see the series of events, and you wonder to yourself, how is it that all of this worked out? And how is it that God's name is actually not mentioned? For me, I'm so glad that this book is in the Bible because I think we can really relate Maybe not to Esther's particular story, but that idea that God is not always obvious in our lives. Sometimes we have that choice of seeing God's hand in our circumstances or writing them off as just a list of coincidences or just, as Sam said earlier, um, a series of events that were our our choices um, as a result of things that were in our control. But I believe that the book of Esther shows us that God speaks to us in the silent love love language of providence. It might be in the circumstances that work out, in the people who bless us, or perhaps in the everyday gift of life.
Just as in the book of Esther, God might be hidden, but He's ever present, ever working in our lives, in our history, and in our world. Even though it doesn't look like it. But I want to suggest that the story is not yet over. Can you imagine for Esther? Like I said, she might not have been a very happy woman during her forced captivity, during her forced beauty regiment, during, you know, if you've ever seen Miss Congeniality, it's not a fun process to go through a beauty regiment. You know, when she was going through all that, and she wondered, well, now what do I do with my life? She might have had very different um, life goals for herself. But here she is forced into a different set of circumstances. And it wasn't until after she became queen, until after she um, goes through that whole plot with Haman, that perhaps she could finally say, when the story was over, I came to this place for such a time as this. God has brought me here for such a time as this. We don't always get to see that until we get to the end of the story. We were, we're a lot of times in the middle of that story where we're in the valley, we're in the difficulty, we're in the captivity, we're in that um, place where we wonder, God, why am I here instead of where I wanted to be? Or why am I going through this instead of that? But the story is not over yet. And even though God might not, might not seem to be obviously working, I want to suggest that he is working behind the scenes. His hand of design is there in our lives. And that even though he is hidden, if we were to look, that we could find him. The famous poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning. uh, I think the battery might have died, James. Can you go to the next slide? Oh, there it is. Um, She wrote, I really like this poem. She says, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Do we see the hand of design in the flower, in the baby being formed in the mother's womb, and in our lives? Have you ever written down a timeline of your life? I have. Um, I have because someone suggested it to me. They said, you want to see God's hand in your life? Make a timeline of your life. So I said, okay. So I went home and I did it. This is when I was about 25, I think. I think I was having that quarter of a century crisis, you know. And so um, I wrote down all the major events of my life, you know, birth, moving to America from Korea when I was eight years old, all the stuff I went through, um, you know, being an immigrant in America, how we moved every two years, where we moved to, um, who I dated, who I broke up with. You know, I wrote down everything. And as I was writing it all down, it was amazing. I had never realized it until I had written it down, but I could see patterns in my life. For example, patterns, every time I moved to a new place, I moved every two years because my father was a literature evangelist. And so every other year I was a new kid in school. Hated it. And the first day of every uh, time I was a new kid in, you know, on the block, I would pray and ask God, help me to find one good friend. Because as Sam shared, it stinks to be lonely and it's terrible to be in a new place and not know anyone. And, you know, at the time when you do find that friend and things go well, you're happy, but you forget about it. But when I made that timeline and I saw every place I went, I had one really, actually several really good friends who ended up being such a blessing in my life and who shaped who I became. And I also looked at the patterns, other patterns of of terrible mistakes I've made. Um, 
like the guys I dated <laughs> before I met Roy. And, you know, when I looked at the pattern of, of kind of, you know, why I went into those relationships, especially, it was always the same. Like, you know, it, it was never because I really felt convicted that God led me to the person. It was always because, oh, he likes me. Oh, he's not, he's not a good person. Okay. You know, it was always, and then after a while I realized, ah, actually, no, this isn't right. And I didn't realize at the time, but I realized after, when I made the timeline that I always broke up with him around month eight. Um, that's how I knew that with Roy was, it was, it was going to last because we made it past month eight. <laughs> and because, um, I went into it with completely different reasons. I went into it knowing this is what God wants. But yeah, when I looked at all the patterns of all the terrible decisions I made, how I made the same mistakes over and over again, um, and how terribly awful that all of those things could have worked out, but how somehow I was spared from the worst. You know, yeah, I had scars, but I was spared from the worst. And I was able to just say, as I was making that timeline, um, oh, thank God. Thank God. Nowhere on that timeline did it say, and then God said this to me. Nowhere on the timeline did it say, and then God, you know, um, the heavens open and the angels saying, and, you know, nowhere on the timeline did it have those moments, but it was still clear to me that God had protected me and guided me and led me and blessed me through the ups and downs, through the times when, you know, I feel like, there's this harmony between God's will and my will. And at times, it's dissonant because I'm rebelling. But at times, it's beautiful when I obey. And, and the harmony can become stunning when it, it reveals God's realness to others in my life, despite who I am. And that's, that's when I also realize that God is real. When people say to me, you know what? Something you said or something you did helped me to see God. And, and it always kind of, it's a wonderful thing to hear. And, and it's also surprising because you think to yourself, you know, my life, how can they see God through it? There's nothing in me that's, you know, shouts out God, right? And yet, if someone can see that, imagine, imagine if we, if our lives were more in harmony with God's will, if we, if we let God have more control of our lives, if we, if we let him make more choices, and if we really surrender to him more, how many people would truly say, even if we didn't say a word, even if God's name is not tattooed all over us, even if we're not carrying I love Jesus stickers, that people can actually say, I see God in you. I know God is real because of you. And that's what happens in Esther's life. I... That's the story, that's the lesson that comes out of that book, is that even though God's word is not mentioned at all, at the end of it, you just think, wow, what a wonderful story. Praise God that he, that the entire people were spared because of his hand guiding this young woman's life. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says this. It says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. In other words, every single one of us is a letter or a book of the Bible, if you will. Our story is not over yet. It's still being written. But there are others reading our stories. And as they read our stories, they get to see God. They get to see Jesus Christ shining through because he's written in our hearts. Because um, he, he, his presence 
can be felt and realized when they look at our lives. There's a woman in Inner Mongolia, China, who secretly led worship and Bible study with 60 people in her apartment building. One day there was a rumor that a spy had reported the group to the police, and this is because um, it was illegal at the time. And sure enough, the rumor scared some people, and the next week only 200 people showed up. And during the service, the police came and arrested this woman leader and sentenced her to prison for one year. But during that one year of her prison cell um, time, she could not hide who she was. She could not hide um, her love for Christ and why she lived. And so she was sharing about Jesus to everyone and her spirit of unselfishness and forgiveness and, and love um, just was irresistible. And um, many of her inmates started accepting Jesus. One day the police called her and they said, um, we are dismissing you. Please go home. And she said, you can't do that. My sentence is for one year and it's only been six months. And they said, if we keep you here, the whole prison will become Christians. It's safer to send you home. And so they did. They sent her home after six months. We don't know how the story ends. We don't know what God has in store for us still. Not just at Christmas times or when there is an obvious miracles, but in the daily life, day by day, as we acknowledge him and praise him and walk with him and surrender to him, our stories can unfold in such a way that in the end there's going to be this tapestry where in, you know, we only see the back where there's like gnarls and it makes no sense and there's different colors and we have no idea. But when you flip that tapestry around, once it's complete, there's this beautiful mosaic, there's a beautiful picture. You know, on Thursday, um, I was FaceTiming my parents and I like to uh, have one well, my guys eating breakfast, and we say hello to them. And so uh, Thursday morning, my guys eating. I, I FaceTime my parents, and I said hello. And the first thing they said was, "Oh, are you calling because you're worried about us?" And I said, "No. Should I be worried about you?" And they said, "Oh, haven't you seen the news?" They said, "Just just about an hour or so ago." Um, there was a mass shooting in San Bernardino, which is 15 minutes from my parents' house. And um, they said the shooters have not been caught. And so there's hel- helicopters and police all around the neighborhood, you know, searching for them. And um, we've been told to stay inside. And so they, they had locked their doors and they were um, at home. And I had no idea because I hadn't checked the news that morning. Um, and I asked, you know, is Iris at the hospital? And they said, yep, she's fine. She's at the hospital. And I knew that she was going to be all right. Uh, obviously, she would have a very busy day, a very hectic day. But um, it was better than five years ago when there was a, um, someone, a shooter, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital where she was working. And that, that, was, that was a whole different story. But anyways, and so I, I knew that my family were, were fine. But I also knew that there would be lots of other families that were not that day. Um, 14 people died and 21 people were, sh- were hurt because of the couple that um, that went in and shot these people during their conference and end-of-year holiday party. And um, I just thought to myself, you know, it's almost Christmas, and there they are going through a very tragic time, and this is going to be um, a Christmas for many of those families that's, that's going to be very tragic at a very difficult time. And um, the person who organized the it was the uh, San Bernardino County Health Department kind of end of year conference and party. And 
um, the woman who organized this whole conference, Amanda Gasford, um, she's a Seventh-day Adventist Christian woman. And she had shared that um, she had just dismissed the group for a break um, a few minutes before the shooters came in. And so she was just saying, I'm so glad because if the break hadn't happened, there would have been more people in the room. Um, but they called the break. Um, some people had, had gone out, and then the shooters came in. Um, and she was lying on the ground, and the shooter came over. And for some reason, um, instead of shooting her on the head, shot her on the leg. And so she ended up surviving. Um, she was also hit by sharp nails, you know, hitting her multiple places. But she's, she talked about how... Um, you know, as they were all, of course, lying there in, in suffering and pain and shock and trauma, um, after the shooters had, had left, um, she, she said many of them, as you can imagine, were having a very difficult time and were just um, panicking and going, just um, screaming, etc. And so she went over to her coworkers um, and prayed with them and were trying to comfort them or, and, and were there trying to reassure them until help came. And even as she went through surgery, um, and even after, as she was recovering, her main concern was, is everybody, you know, how is everyone else doing? How are my coworkers? How are their families, et cetera? And, you know, I don't know what, how I would have behaved in that circumstance. Um, I don't know what it'd be like to go through that kind of terrible trauma, but she shares about how every day she spent with those coworkers, um, and every day you know we spend time with our coworkers and our our friends. We have no idea what tomorrow is going to be like, and um, she had tried every day to be as loving as possible, to be um, as kind as possible to her coworkers. And I don't know why the shooter shot her in the leg instead of the head. I have no idea. Um, but for her, the, she's now alive, and she's basically has that choice once again. Do I live the rest of my life every day being as loving as I can, being um, as faithful as I can, being in harmony with God as much as I can? Um, do I take for granted the people around me? Do I take for granted the gifts that God has given of life, of being alive? Um, and her story's not over yet. Her story's not over yet. You know, sometimes we go through very difficult times in our lives. Um, for those families, this is, this is definitely one of them. For many of us, for many of you, you might be going through things that I don't know anything about, but this might be a very difficult time in your life. Christmas might be your least favorite time of the year for whatever reason. And I just want to encourage you and say, the story is not over yet. And in the daily life leading up to that next event, leading up to whether it's that triumph or that tragedy, the every day that you have now, even though God might not seem obvious, even though it, it seems like he's hidden, even though it seems like he's silent, even though it seems like everything is just going pear-shaped, not only is the story not over, even though God may seem hidden, he is working. He's doing something. He has a plan. And just like in the story of Esther, um, they had to go through their mourning where ultimately they thought they were all going to be killed. But in the end, 
they not only were saved, but saved in a way that they could celebrate every year for their for the miracle, for the way that God worked. And I promise that one day, even though right now we might be going through ups and downs, even though right now it seems like God is hidden, that God has a plan to end the suffering, to end the pain, to make all things right, to defend and save us. And that ultimately, when he brings about that justice, brings about the restoration, brings about the resurrection, and reunites loved ones together, that when that day comes, we'll be able to look back and say, God was there all along. And God has guided us in history, guided us as a people, as individuals. And that the hidden God of our lives actually touched someone else around us. And so I pray that all of us would be able to first recognize God's hand in our lives, recognize God's hand in others' lives, and hopefully um, can encourage and bless those around us that they can see God through us, the hidden God who is invisible but discernible with the heart. Thank you.